This Halloween, the world is uh, going to mark a very, very important anniversary. It's not just one for uh, a particular denomination or nation. This is, this is one for the world. 500 years ago, um, a young minister in Wittenberg, Germany, ignited a spark that changed the world. And that's not an exaggeration. And as a former Lutheran pastor, I had read accounts of Martin Luther and his 95 theses before, but the scope, the scope of the Reformation's impact on the course of history didn't start to sink in until uh, last December when I went to an exhibit that was hosted right here in Minneapolis. Down at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, they had this collection, I think it was the largest collection of, of artifacts from the, resurrection, or the Reformation itself that had ever been assembled outside of Europe. And as I was looking at all of those things and reading about these, these accounts, it began to sink in that this, this, uh, this event and the events that followed, um, it, it was akin to, without exaggeration, a massive meteor, the ripples from a massive meteor striking the ocean. It, it, was, it was a huge event. You know, here, let me give you a couple examples. Um, consider this, when Martin Luther was born, you were either aligned with the misguided ways of the church of that time or you were considered a pagan. There was one denomination at the time and it was led by a whole lot of misguided folks and you were either a part of that or you were considered a pagan. And by the time that Martin Luther died, there was a new Jesus movement that was more than taking roots. It was, it was moving throughout Germany and there was a new Jesus movement in England. And there, were a new, there was a new Jesus movement in the Swiss city-states. And the, that movement to bring reforms to every stretch of the globe continued to spread and to spread and to spread from there. And of the now about 40,000 denominations that exist today, about 39,999, including the covenant denomination that we're part of, can trace their roots back to October 31st, 1517 and the events that followed. I was talking to Jeff House after the service and he said, you know, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, you have a single cell and that single cell has to multiply in order to differentiate in such a way to bring the body to the kind of wholeness that you want. And God certainly used that event to, to create all of these different groups and organizations that together comprise the body of Christ. Well, as was the case for Jesus himself, when Jesus stepped into this world, Martin Luther was born into a world where church leaders had lost their way. Power and affluence had corrupted the highest levels of a movement whose founder had taught, whose founder had taught that the greatest is the one who serves. And one of the things that struck me at the exhibit as I was looking at all these artifacts was the lavishness of many of the artifacts of that day that were pre-Reformation or during that time. I took a picture. It's really be hard to see this um, with clarity, but on your left there, I've got some pictures of some robes that some of the dignitaries would wear, and they were so ornate and so detailed and so lavish. And then here's this gold art altarpiece that was set up in front of one church. It was a very, very elaborate, elaborate um, faith at the time. And if I'm syncing my timelines right, when Luther visited Rome in 1510, he arrived just four years after Michelangelo's team broke ground 
on St. Peter's Basilica. Over-the-top opulence wasn't all that Luther witnessed when he was in Rome. At that time, Rome was the epicenter of the Christian faith. And he went there, and he was so discouraged as a young monk at the time who was trying to live right before God because imagine seeing all of these buildings filled with people wearing bishop's hats, wearing cardinal clothing, who are the equivalent, the moral equivalent of the Harvey Weinsteins and Bernie Madoffs of our day. These were the people leading the church at that time. I've got another slide here. We'll take a look at this. It was off my phone as well. And in the middle, the thing I want to draw attention to is that gold hand, that gold hand. Church officials claimed that that, uh, that container contained a bone fragment from a very famous Bible character. And what they would do is they would send things like that um, on tour, objects like that on tour, and they'd vent all kinds of teachings surrounding those relics. And on top of that, in Luther's day, church services were conducted in Latin, which almost nobody spoke. So in places like Germany, where Luther was from, they weren't speaking Lutheran in their churches. They are speaking Latin. And on top of that, in Luther's day... <laughs> There's, what did I say? German. What did I say? Oh, man, I've been doing this all week. Speaking German. Whatever I said, I meant to say, evidently, they were speaking German. Oh, man. Um, well, that actually glides into where I'm going next year. On top of that, um, with the Latin thing, um, the, the whole idea of we have our Bible up here, and it's in English. Did I get that one right? Our Bible's in English. Our Bible's in English, and it's open. And it's turned towards us. In Luther's day, it wasn't the case. The Bible was turned away from the people and it was in a language that they couldn't understand. Luther was passionate about equipping people to have access to the Bible and the message it contains and to have access to it in their own language, whether they spoke German or Lutheran, right? In fact, he said this. He said this to, to a preacher. These are his words. He said, cursed be every preacher who aims at lofty topics in the church, looking for his own glory and selfishly desiring to please one individual or another. I don't look at the academic doctors and masters of whom scarcely 40 are present, but at the hundred or the thousand young people and children. It's to them that I preach, he said. To them that I devote myself. For they too need to understand. And if the others don't want to listen... What does he say? They can leave. Another of the things that struck me from the exhibit that I mentioned earlier um, were tools like this. Now, again, this is going to be hard to see, but what you see on your, it'd be your left, is this, this thing is massive. Like if you put a person next to it, a person would be about as tall as that thing. It was huge. It was the original PowerPoint of its day. Because on this thing, you had about 150 individual scenes, all from Jesus' life. And there was this elaborate system of hinges and slides so that they could engage people and tell the stories about Jesus in a way that captivated and was accurate and was true and that drew people in. Luther and those who were inspired by him, they became much more intentional as they would communicate to people. And here's another slide. I showed this one before when I was coming back from that, um, that, that uh, event back in December. Here's another tool that was developed after the Reformation. Luther and the reformers, they wanted to teach the Bible as effectively as they could. 
And this was a tool that one church created to help new pastors apply the best rhetorical practices of their day to their sermons. The tool had four sand timers. Four sand timers. So pastor stands up. They flipped the first timer, and the first timer was to ensure that the speaker would spend about 15 minutes introducing the topic. And then the next timer would get flipped, and they had 15 minutes to state the facts. And then the timer would flip again, and they had 15 minutes to say, how do we actually apply this to our lives? And then 15 minutes to give a conclusion. Luther also left behind a legacy of hymns that continue to be sung around the world. According to Luther, next to the word of God, music. Deserved the highest praise. And what he did is he called upon musicians and poets to develop songs that could be used in church to engage people in heartfelt worship. We're going to sing one of those at the close of today's service. Well, in addition to all of this, Luther helped the world rediscover what God says about marriage and about family and about work. And what he helped the world rediscover was that these things are sacred vocations. And they are not simply sin-necessitated concessions, which was being taught by many people. Luther became an influencer of influencers in a new movement that drew people back into the Bible and to the good news it contains. And word spread of the courageous stand that Luther was taking in Germany. Influential believers came from all over continental Europe and England and Scotland to meet with him. Reforms then began to spread all around the world, beyond the walls of churches and beyond the walls of universities, into literature and into the arts, into education and into healthcare, into law and into politics. The Reformation impacted virtually every aspect of people's lives. And yet, most of us, myself included, we know so little about this key history of who we are as a people and where we came from as a church. The Reformation movement that was lit by a spark 500 years ago reshaped Europe, redirected world history, and recovered the good news that Jesus brought to the world. And I'm so thankful. There's a lot of good resources out there. I'm so thankful for Steve Kruger. He um, introduced me to a, a resource that I hadn't heard about called The Legacy of Luther. It's the one book that we're recommending for this series. It's very, very different than Right Click. Very, very different than Same Kind of Different to Me. And that's a good thing. We want to expose you to a variety of resources. And this one does a really good job. of not. It, it does a good job with the history. But beyond that. Beyond that, what it does a great job of is introducing us to the impact and the legacy that this movement left behind. The book contains essays from 15 scholars who examine the life and the teaching, the enduring influence. And I also appreciate they press into the dark sides of this movement and the individuals as well. Of some of the most influential people to ever live. All right, so all that said... Here's a challenge that's before us on the 500th anniversary of A Day That Changed the World. How do you begin a series like this? How do you begin a series like this? And I, so I was praying about this. I'm like, oh, Lord, what would you have us to say as we start this series, as we launch this first teaching of the four? What would you have us to say or focus on? And it was, it was, it was good because I, I believe that the Holy Spirit did whisper. And here's what I think, as best I could discern it, was whispered. Begin by talking about my bride. Begin by talking about my bride, the church. 
The Bible speaks of the church as the bride of Christ. You know, and that certainly ties into, you know, my own life. One of the most profound moments of my life was standing up at Northwestern College in front of Nazareth Chapel. And when the doors to the back opened, in walked the most beautiful person I'd ever seen. After months of preparation, everything was ready. Everything was ready. The room was filled with our closest family and friends. Laura and I, we were prepared as best we could be to commit to ourselves, commit ourselves to one another for the rest of our lives. And we had this banquet room that was all set up and prepared for a huge party. That day, as magical as it was, that day, as magical as it was, was just a shadow of a day that we are 500 years closer to than we were in the time of Luther. And I'd love for us to take a look at that. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Revelation Revelation chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free today. Each and every week, we keep uh, copies in English, not Lutheran, um, over there on the table. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, anyway, we keep them there, and they're there for you. Please take one home as a gift. This is a book of Revelation. Now, we're going to start here in verse 6, and then we're going to come back to verse 1. But I want to start here intentionally in verses 6 and 7. Here's what it says. And, oh, before we... Before we do that, just keep your scriptures open. I want to encourage you to write this down as we dive into this text. Write down in your notes, there's a place to write this down. The invitation has been extended to the world. The invitation has been extended to the world. And we're going to read about this invitation and talk about this invitation here. All right, so here we go. Uh, Revelation 19, 7 verse 6. Then I heard. What seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the, what? Marriage of the Lamb, referring to Jesus, has come and his bride has made herself, what? Ready. His bride has made herself ready. There's a lot of speculation that goes into why Jesus didn't marry, which would be a very interesting thing for a lot of reasons to, to press into in the future. But one of the reasons that I see is this. He didn't marry because he was already engaged to his bride, the church. The word that we translate as church in our English Bible is the word ecclesia. It's a Greek word that referred back at that time and in that place to an assembly of people. And when Jesus spoke of his ecclesia, he was describing his sacred assembly, his people, those who gathered in his name, a people who were called to distinguish themselves from all other people. We're invited. We're invited into a new community that loves one another like no one else. A community that loves our enemies like no one else. Among us, there is to be no poor or marginalized. Among us, there's to be no favoritism to either the rich or the poor, to men or to women, young or to old. The church of Jesus Christ is to be as devoted to him as the most devoted wife is to the most devoted husband. The kind of husband that would lay down his life for his bride. The church of Jesus Christ is to remain as faithful to him as the most faithful wife is to the most faithful husband, the kind of husband that would never sin against her. And when this season of preparation is over, this season that we're in right now as the church, 
this side of history. When this season of preparation is over and all the trials and tribulations of this world pass away, we are invited into a great celebration that will continue throughout history and eternity. Verse 9 says this, Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then the angel said to me, These words are what? They are the true words of God. And as I began digging into this text, it became clear that this is the moment here. This is the moment that the heavens and the earth have been waiting for since Genesis 3. When those who receive and respond to the invitation will enter into a realm where there is no more suffering and no more death and no more injustice because all of those things have been vanquished. And that's what brings us now back to verse 1. Here's how this section starts. Let's back up. Revelation Chapter 19, verses 1 and 2 says this. All right, after I had heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Before we get to the Alleluia is the wedding day. We get to these alleluias. These come first. Alleluias that rise up for the great victory over the devil and over all who side with them that's coming. And here's something that was really interesting. I was reading through this passage, and I, I've got my ESV study Bible. I recommend this resource also at different times. And I'm reading some of the commentary below. And my commentary says here in the commentary surrounding verses 1 and 2 of chapter 19 that this is the first time in the New Testament that Alleluia shows up. I'm like, that can't be right. So I fact-checked as best I could, and it is. This is the end of the Bible, and it's the first time in the New Testament section that the word Alleluia shows up. Alleluia is a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word that means praise the Lord. And the, the original language was written in Greek, and they just straight up used a transliteration of, of Hallelujah. They wrote that in there. It's the first time it shows up. That's got to be significant. Because in the Old Testament, it shows up a lot. You won't see it in your English Bibles because we directly translate it from Hebrew and English. And so you see, praise the Lord. Often that's, he, that's the Hebrew word, Hallelujah, being translated. What was it about this moment? What was it about this moment that appears only here in the New Testament? And it doesn't just appear. In Revelation 19, it appears four times in just six verses. Out of all the events, in all of the pages of the New Testament that precede this one, alleluias are reserved for this moment. That's significant. When the devil and all who align with them against the bridegroom and his bride have been judged, and the great marriage of Christ and his bride is finally here. Which begs two questions. I'm going to encourage you to write these down in your notes. These are significant questions. Question number one, have you received the bridegroom's invitation? And that question leads to the second one. How are you preparing for the day? How are you preparing for that day? Because a day is coming where we cross from this life into the next. 
or when history crosses, crosses from this section of history into the next. And the scriptures, when they draw attention to that day, they often emphasize that this is a day you want to be ready for. Ready for. There's a reason we keep coming back to that theme in this church, because the Bible keeps coming back to that theme. This is a day you want to be ready for. And Matthew 25 records a story that Jesus told about some bridesmaids and a bridegroom. And that, that, uh, that story go, begins like this. Matthew 25, 1 through 2 says, Then... The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five were foolish and five were wise. And through our 21st century ears, we hear that and we go, what is this, the bachelor? What in the world is going on? This is very different than that. This is not, hey, I'm going to pick one of you ten. This is, I know who my bride is. These were more like bridesmaids, attendants. Five were foolish, five were wise. Now, really quickly, I do want to highlight one thing. There's implications here when it comes to what the Bible calls the Trinity. Well, actually, the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity. One of the reasons we come to the conclusion that one God exists in three persons are verses like this. And why we come to that conclusion is because in the Old Testament, God the Father refers to himself as the husband of Israel. And here you have the words of Jesus. And Jesus referring to himself as the bridegroom for the church. That's an important aside, but here's my main point. My main point is this. As this story unfolds, Jesus reveals there are eternal consequences associated with being ready and with being not ready. There's eternal consequences for both. And the story that Jesus tells ends with this chilling warning. Matthew 25, 13. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. Watch, be ready. And that brings us to, in your notes, what I call the paradox of preparation. The paradox of getting ready. The paradox of preparation. And let's go back to our text and press into this paradox a little bit more. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. And if you just took this verse in isolation, if you just focused here, you would, it would appear as though the hallelujah chorus is being sung by those who are giving God the glory for something that the bride did. Because isn't it the bride who made herself ready? So why aren't we saying, good job. You look awesome. Way to go. Way to get yourself ready. One of the reasons why I appreciate my Lutheran roots so much is how Luther kept pointing people back to God's grace. It's one of the things he did really, really well. There's a lot of things he didn't do well. One of the things he did really, really well was pointing the church of Jesus Christ back to God's grace. And boy, the world needed it in the 1500s. One of the things that Luther called out in his day was an overemphasis on what we must do to become pure and holy. One of the first times I ever teared up at a song is when I heard this one by an artist named Keith Green who picks up on these themes. Part of the song goes like this. My son, my son, why are you striving? You can't add one thing to what's been done for you. I did it all while I was dying. Rest in your faith and my peace will come to you. For when I hear the praises start, I want to rain upon you Blessings that will fill your heart. I see 
no stain upon you because you're my child and you know me. To me, you're only holy. Nothing that you've done remains. Only what you do for me. The last verse and chorus go like this. And I never made this connection between all of this and the bride before. But it says this, my precious bride, the day is nearing when I'll take you in my arms and I'll hold you. I know there's so many things that you've been hearing, but you just hold on to what I've told you. For when I hear the praises start, my bride, I want to rain upon you blessings that will fill your heart. I see no stain upon you because you're my child and you know me. To me, you're only holy and nothing that you've done remains. Only what you do for me. One of the things that I shared with the 9 o'clock, 9.15 that wasn't in my notes is how you start to see some metaphors get mixed here just like they are in the scriptures. That's because none of these metaphors, as beautiful as they are, the metaphors that, that most speak to relational intimacy, not one of them can capture this relationship that we have with God or can have with God. A husband and wife can't fully capture it. A father and a child can't fully capture it. The best of friends can't fully capture it. It's all of these things and more. Jesus loves his bride. He loves, the father loves his children so much that Jesus came and laid down his life for us. Okay, so why do we honor God? Why do we give him the glory instead of ourselves? Let's go back to our text and just keep reading. Let's go back to Revelation 7, but now let's, 19, 7, but now let's add verse 8. It says, the bride has made herself ready, semicolon. It was what? Granted her. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. This is such powerful imagery. As I was doing my research for this, this, uh, this message, I read that fine linen was the mandatory apparel for the high priest when he would go into the Holy of Holies. That was fine linen. And how do sinful people obtain a garment of righteousness made of fine linen? The bride's wedding gown of righteous deeds is her groom's gift of grace. Isn't that beautiful? Can I get an amen from that? Amen. Well, our family had a chance to go to Disney World over MEA. And as many of you can testify to, there is a high price to pay to get into those doors. And then once you in, get in, you begin to realize there are even more opportunities that you have before you that also have price tags associated with them. You can purchase delightful foods and Disney-themed clothing if you can afford them. You can purchase special, special passes that allow you to hop from park to park if you can afford them. You can stay in Disney-themed resorts if you can afford them. You can dine with Disney characters if you can afford it. And for the right price, you can even get into this exclusive experience where you can dine right in Cinderella's castle if you can afford it. Or if someone else pays the price for you. The invitation that's been extended to us and the price that we could never pay to afford these kind of fine linen 
get ourselves cleaned up for the big day. That price has been paid. And Luther and the Reformers reminded us and the world of this good news. And that was one of the things I noticed. You know, again, every denomination brings its strengths and brings its weaknesses. One of the things that the Lutheran movement um, really brings forth is this idea of grace. And as I was reading multiple commentaries on Revelation 19, one of the things that I noticed is that the further that the publisher was distant from Lutheran roots, the less they emphasized grace. Almost everyone emphasized the need for purity on the part of the bride to enter in. The further you got from Luther, the less they emphasized grace. And the closer you got to Luther roots, the more they emphasized, this is a gift. Luther was amazed by grace. He was amazed by grace, in part because he tried so hard to earn righteousness. When he was a young man, when he was a monk, he, he went all out trying to live the perfect life. And he found that he kept falling short over and over again. In fact, he was trying so hard to live without any sin that literally one of his supervisors, when he was a monk, said, would you quit coming to confession until you got something to confess? Because he was just every little thing. He wanted to live perfectly. And as he was honest, look, as he looked back on his early years, he said, I hated the righteousness of God. I hated it. Because it was this standard that I could not reach. Here's how he says it in his own words. He goes this. He said, if I lived and if I worked to all eternity, my conscience would never reach comfortable certainty as to how much it must do to satisfy God. Whatever work I had done, there would still be a nagging doubt as to whether it pleased God or whether he required something more. And it was through the word, specifically Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, that Luther's eyes were opened to a righteousness that comes, not by our own striving, but through faith in what Christ has already done for his bride. And that was a game changer for him. It was a game changer. He went from resenting God to truly loving him. Not just saying, I love him. Truly loving him so much that he was willing to lay down his life for God and for his bride, the church. And when the scales fall from our own eyes, as they did his, we're going to see that our righteousness before God, it is a gift. Here's what it says in Revelation. All of a sudden, when you start to have that paradigm, you, you begin to realize it's everywhere. In the book of Revelation itself, look at this. Um, Revelation 6, 11. Where did they get the robe? They were given, given a white robe. Then that Revelation 7, 14, they have washed the robes and made them white in what? The blood of the lamb it didn't come from own righteousness it came from what jesus did these passages echo a revelation that was written down hundreds of years earlier isaiah 61 10 i will re greatly rejoice in the lord my soul shall exalt in my god for he has clothed me with garments of salvation he has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels church of jesus christ is a cinderella story in so many ways in matthew 22 1 through 14 jesus tells a story to illustrate what the kingdom of heaven is like and get this the story about what the kingdom of heaven is like is a story about a king who throws a wedding party for his son many reject that invitation and there's one man he tries to get in without the right 
bright wedding clothes. And it doesn't end well for either of those two. Every person who's going to be in that wedding party will have their own Cinderella story of a God who exchanged their filthy rags for fine linen that they could have never afforded on their own. All right. I put a lot of things out there. Let me see if I can start to bring this together as we bring this day to a close. 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth extended an invitation. The invitation for sinful people like you and me to follow him and become a new community, to live as he lived, to teach as he taught, to experience a new way of living and a new community that's a shadow of the kingdom to come. And we're to invite others to experience all this with us. This vision that Jesus had was so captivating to him and he loved these people so much that he laid down his life for us. His church. All right, fast forward from that 1,500 years to the Middle Ages to a bride that had lost her way. And into that time and into that place stepped a young man who God sent named Martin Luther who did his best as a sinful, broken person to point the bride back to the vision that God had for his people. Fast forward from that day, 500 years to now, to a community center in Shoreview, Minnesota. Over the next three weeks, what we're going to do the best we can with the time we have is to look at three areas where we've drifted. Three areas where we've drifted. As individuals, most of us, and as a community. There are so many ways that we don't reflect the people that God has called us to be. We're going to press into three. And we're going to ask everyone, everyone, to take an honest look in the mirror. We're going to do that as a church. We're going to encourage you as individuals. To look in the mirror. We're not going to look at other churches. We're not going to look at others. We're going to encourage us to look at ourselves as a church. As ourselves as individuals. And there's a place to write this in your notes. The reason we're doing this. Is because the reformation of the church. Begins with each of the individuals that comprise her. It is so easy to take shots at others, isn't it? So easy. So easy. It's like hunting cows. It's really easy. The reformation of the church begins with each of the individuals comprised or the hard thing is to look within and to say, God, what would you have us to do in response to what you've done? This is not a series. We're going to take a bunch of easy shots at the bridezillas out there who also stand in need of reformation. The next three weeks are about taking an honest look in the mirror as we prepare to walk down the aisle as individuals, as a church. And here's something I want to invite everyone to do as we launch this series. Imagine if all of us took Jesus up on his unparalleled invitation. Continue to fix your eyes on that. I think that's why God, as best I can discern it, whispered, let's start by talking about the church, my bride. Let's focus on what he would have us to be. Let's focus on that day that's waiting. Emmanuel turned 10 this year. And this week, these last couple days, have been a reminder of what can happen as we, as fallen people, try to pursue that vision that he's given us. Ten years ago, we had about six kids in this church on Wednesday night. How many of you are right here in this room? Wednesday night. There was more than you and Brian. Come on. How many were here? Hands, show your hands. All right. There was, this room was packed, wasn't it? And the lobby had people overflowing with, with, with all of these families. The, the kids team put together an event for kids to bring joy to kids. 
And it was a beautiful thing to give families a chance experiencing something memorable together in community. And then, not long after that, on Friday night, there were teenagers running all over this place. We rented it after hours, 11 to 1, you know. And it was incredible because the, the team had said, we've never done this before, this event. So they were expecting 15, 20 people. And the group was about 200% bigger than that. And it was so encouraging because here are all these teenagers coming having a blast. And Dan and Caitlin, as best they could, trying to say, and you can live differently. This whole theme with these aliens and stuff we've got here, because we're in this world but not of it. And that was Friday. And then Saturday, many of you were down, Union Gospel Mission. And that was something that 10 years ago was just an aspirational goal that we had. To someday to be able to offer those kind of opportunities where we can invite people to say, let's come together, let's try to, try to make these, these differences, let's try to expose people and encourage people and engage people. That was just like four last four days. Do we have a long way to go as a church? Oh, yeah. But can you imagine 10 years from now what God could do if all of us caught a vision for a bride who in response to amazing grace was preparing for her wedding day. And we were saying, God, thank you for what you've done. Help us to become more beautiful, more beautiful each and every day. Wouldn't that be cool? I think that'd be cool. Well, there is a paradox. And as the worship band comes forward, there is a paradox I want to, uh, to remind us of. And that is Luther and the reformers pressed into this paradox that in light of all that God has done, what would he have us to do? Because it is God who's done it. And it's also us who do it in his strength and by his power. Well, there's a, a great song that we're going to close with today. It's a song that the, the people of God have been singing for 500 years. It's one that Luther wrote. Um, they mentioned a whole lot about Luther and hymns in these books that I've been reading. This is the one that kept coming up over and over and over again. It's called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's a powerful song. It's, if you haven't heard it before... It's going to be like, have you read the Bible before? Here we go. You know, it's, it's like that. It's just, it's thick. I would encourage you, we put a link to it in, last, in this week's ECC mail. I'll try to remember to send a link to this version again. These are rich words. We encourage you to enter in with us. Let me pray as we do. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for being a, revealing yourself as a father as a husband, as our great and powerful defender. Lord, we face some very real opposition to the work that you have. Help us to make this great proclamation that you've won the victory and greater is he who's in us in this fallen thing called the church than he who is in the world. Help us to proclaim these realities now in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.